This is our second week in the book of Ephesians. Find that spot in your Bible. If you've got a bookmark, you can put it there and get comfortable. We'll be in the book of Ephesians for probably almost a year as we go through Paul's letter, going through at a much slower pace than we have other historical narrative books. This morning we are going to focus on chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. But as we did last week, I would like to read the whole of the sentence that Paul has written in praise of God. It's one very long sentence that runs from verse 3 down to verse 14. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way in which you reveal yourself and your purpose and your work to us. Help us, O Lord, to know you better. Help us, O Lord, to be a thankful people. Help us, O Lord, to know ourselves better and to know the change that you bring about through faith in Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It seems to me, and I believe that many of you have had the same experience, that the best of all teachers are those who can take theoretical, high-level knowledge and then also make it practical. 
Make it something that you can understand and that you understand the difference that that makes in your life and in your education. And the Apostle Paul here today is a good example of one of the best of teachers. You see, in our text this morning, verses 7 through 10, Paul is going to bring down a level, as it were, bring to a more practical engagement with us the doctrine of salvation. You may recall last week we looked at the doctrine of election and adoption in the plan of God. And now here Paul looks at us and describes what that means for us in our everyday lives and how we go forward. He's going to show us about redemption and forgiveness. And so this morning there are two pictures that Paul paints for us. The first is a picture of God's grace in Christ. That is, the grace that comes to us and the blessing that comes to us in the person and work of Jesus. But there is a second picture that Paul paints as well. It is a picture of God's message to us in Christ. That there is a message about who Jesus is and the purpose and end of salvation that is found in Jesus. And so this morning we will look at God's grace in Christ and God's message in Christ. Let's begin then by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, we are told, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Paul continues his great praise of the triune God here in our text. Now, you may recall that last week we looked at the first part of this really long sentence of praise. Verses 3 to 14 are one sentence as Paul has written it. But they are so full of praise, so full of information, Paul doesn't know when to stop. He keeps piling terms of praise on top of each other so that most translations find it impossible to keep it as one sentence. They have to make it three or four sentences so that we can understand it. But in this great sentence of praise, there is a Trinitarian aspect to it. Last week, we looked at the emphasis upon God the Father, planning salvation, choosing a people. This week, we look at God the Son, purchasing salvation for a people, gathering to Himself a people. Next week, we will look at God, the Holy Spirit, and how the salvation of God is applied to His people by the work of the Spirit. So, now, our shift is directly on the person of Christ. But it is, it is just a shift, because even last week, as we looked at verses 3 through 6, we saw that Jesus was at the center of all things. That our election and our adoption was in Christ. Our blessings were found in the Beloved, that is, in Jesus. And so Paul picks up right where he left off. You'll notice that the first two words of verse 7 are remarkably similar to the last few words of verse 6. We have our blessings in the Beloved, and now Paul says it is in Him, that is, the Beloved, that is, Jesus. It is in Him that our salvation is found. 
Now, this is an important reminder, I think, for us, because oftentimes we can approach the idea or the doctrine of salvation like we stand on the side of it, looking at it, analyzing it, poking it, judging it, trying to understand it, what is required, what must be done, how it is explained. But you see, Paul wants us to have the right emphasis, and that is that we are to view salvation squarely through the lens of a relationship with Jesus. It is in Jesus that we have redemption and forgiveness. It is by being united to Christ. It is by trusting Him by faith and being united to Christ by the power of the Spirit that we experience salvation. And so Paul then begins to draw his picture. The first thing that he says is, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Now, the word for redemption here in the Greek is a fairly rare word before the New Testament. It's not used quite often in Greek literature. And that shouldn't surprise us because all throughout the history of the ancient world, people were bent upon the idea of slavery being a foundation of their economy. It was not typical or usual for someone to be redeemed. But you see, this is a biblical concept of redemption, even though the word may not go back that far, it draws upon two Old Testament Hebrew words that give us a picture that we know well. That is, it is the idea of something being bought back for a price. Now, the great picture of this that we have in the Old Testament is found in the book of Ruth. You may remember in the book of Ruth that Naomi and Ruth both lose their husbands and they travel back to Israel and Naomi has lost her land because they have left. It is gone from them. But there was a law in Israel that land could stay within the family and what you needed to do was to find someone who was willing to buy that land back, to redeem it, to bring it back to the proper family. And you may recall that is the role of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He is the kinsman redeemer. He is close to Naomi and Ruth. He is a member of their family. And he pays the price to be paid so that the property will come back to its rightful owners. But that's just one picture of redemption. I think perhaps even a better picture of redemption is that of the slave who is redeemed. Now... Picture in your mind's eye the slave market and the slave on top of the platform as people begin to bid on him as property. He doesn't know where he will go. He doesn't know who his master will be. He doesn't know what he will be asked to do. He doesn't know how he will be treated. But one thing that he sees out in the crowd is someone keeps driving up the price. Someone keeps bidding over and over again. They're insistent on purchasing the slave. And at the end of the transactions, the person has purchased the slave, and the slave goes up to what he believes is his new master, and the person says to him, You're free. I've bought you 
so that you would no longer be a slave anymore. I give you your freedom. You are a free man. Do what you wish. Could you imagine the wave of emotion that would come over that slave? From one moment, fear and trepidation, anger and hatred, and in the next, love and peace and calm. This is a picture of redemption. This kind of redemption from slavery is writ on a stage much larger in the book of Exodus. How God himself purchases his people. He redeems them from slavery in Egypt and carries them out to the promised land so that they might serve him and be blessed. You see, these are pictures of being redeemed from slavery. Now what that means for us then, If we are to be redeemed in Jesus, that must mean that before we can be redeemed, we are enslaved. We must understand that. Now, we're not in the kind of slavery that existed in Egypt or in other places of the world of physical bondage, but we are enslaved to sin. We are unable to perform God's law. We are unable to do the right thing. We are enslaved to our own sin and death and hell. We are lost. And it is not as if we are just unable to find the path. We don't have any idea where we're supposed to go. That's how lost we are. We're enslaved to sin and lost. And there is no way out. You see, some people view enslavement to sin, the way we view enslavement in chains. And they think to themselves, well, I saw in a movie once someone got a lock pick. If I could just pick the locks of my chains of sin, I could be free. Or I saw once a guy pulled his hand through the shackle and he was able to get free. If I could just work hard enough, I could be free from enslavement to sin. But you see, the truth of the matter is Paul tells us that the kind of slavery that we are in is impossible to break free of by our own effort. As a matter of fact, until Jesus comes into our lives, we don't want to be free from the enslavement we have. There's no way out apart from Jesus. But in Jesus, we can find redemption. We are bought with a price. That is, Paul tells us we are redeemed through His blood. It is a costly price. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus has paid the price that we might be redeemed. And the price is costly. It is the only way that we could be redeemed. Now stop and think for a moment how out of proportion the gift is. We are redeemed from our bondage and sin by the blood of the Son of God. By the perfect, eternal Son of God. How out of proportion is the worth of the life of the Son of God to each and every one of us miserable sinners, rebels against God, those who love and desire sin. 
And yet God showers his grace upon us that he pays a cost beyond anything that we would possibly imagine. We are not so quick to pay an excessive cost, are we? We always want to make sure that we get just the right kind of deal. It's been my occasion these past few months to occasionally look to try and see if we're going to add another car to our fleet of vehicles as more and more of my boys begin to drive. And as I look at the price, the very first thing that I want to make sure is they're not asking too much. I do the research and I try and find out is the cost more than it should be. But Jesus doesn't analyze the situation that way. He is willing to pay a cost beyond anything that we know or we could bear that we might be redeemed. Redeemed by Jesus. Now notice something else about this statement. Paul says that in him we have redemption through his blood. Grammatically, that is a present tense verb. It means right now we have it. It's not that we will have it. It's not that we had it in the past. Right now we have redemption. And this is all the more remarkable as you look through this passage over and over again. Paul speaks in the past tense. But it is here that he intentionally uses a present tense to remind us that the redemption that comes in Christ is something we enjoy now. We do not need to wait to enjoy it. We have it right now through the work of Jesus. Have you been set free from sin and death? Do you know the freedom that comes by a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in Jesus and what He has done? Do you acknowledge the price that has been paid on the cross and say, there is nothing I can contribute? Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. But there is more. Because it's not as if we are prisoners innocently. No, Paul reminds us that we are in a prison of our own making. Because he tells us that we are the ones who are guilty. We receive redemption from Christ, but we also receive the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, Paul reminds us that we are burdened by sin. Now, there are several ways to describe sin. There are several types of words used in the Bible that we translate sin or to describe sin. One in which you must, might be familiar with is often called missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. And that is true. But I think sometimes if we view sin as just missing the mark, we think to ourselves, with more practice, we can hit the mark. You know, if we just try harder. Which among us who's ever watched a basketball game and watched one of these professional players making millions of dollars that shoot 40% on free throws doesn't say to himself, if the guy would just get in the gym and shoot some free throws, he would make it. And that's our attitude toward life. If we just try harder, we can make it. But the fact about sin is that it doesn't include just missing the mark. It includes this aspect as well, trespassing or trespasses. This is a much sharper word that Paul uses than missing the mark. It's not an accidental thing. 
It is intentional. To trespass means to go beyond the boundary or the border that is laid intentionally. And so our trespasses are when we go beyond God's borders, His rights, His law, intentionally. And we break His law. Now it's pretty simple. Trespasses are when you don't do what God commands you to do in His Word. Trespasses are when you do what God forbids in His Word. It's not a complicated matter, but it's an incredibly difficult matter of the will. Outside of Christ, we cannot but trespass against God's law because that is our desire and our love. But here in Christ, we find release from our trespasses. We find forgiveness. It is as if they have never been. You see, with trespasses, we have guilt. And Paul will tell us later in chapter 2, verse 1, that we are actually spiritually dead because of our sin and trespasses. And so forgiveness is essential to restoring our relationship with God the Father. You see, there will be just judgment for sin. God will see to it that His just judgment is manifested. And so to stand before the living God without the forgiveness of sins is to be in hell. That's actually the definition of hell. It is to be in the presence of God experiencing only His wrath because we have no forgiveness of sins. There is no grace upon us. It is only with forgiveness that we can stand before God. It is only with forgiveness that we can know that our relationship with our Creator is sustained and repaired. True forgiveness means that the price has been paid and it is remembered no more. As the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you want to be free from your sins? Then you must experience the forgiveness of Christ. A forgiveness that is only found in Christ in the work that He has procured for us. Well, how can this really happen though? The more we know about a holy God, the more we know about ourselves and how we fall short, the more we know about the enormity of the cost of redemption, how can it possibly be that we could experience forgiveness and redemption? This is the third thing that Paul shows us. He shows us the wonder of the gospel and of the free grace that comes to us in Christ. You see... The wonder of the gospel is that it doesn't depend on how good we are. It doesn't depend on how hard we try. The gospel doesn't minimize the problem and say, it doesn't really matter, we can look past it. No. The wonder of the gospel is that God's grace is greater than all our sin. What a wonder this is for us. Do you wonder whether God could possibly forgive your sins? You look and you say, well, I'm sure that he could forgive this person or that person, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been in my heart. 
You don't know. I don't. But I do know that Paul tells us in God's word that God's grace is greater than all our sin. And he does this in a very easy way to understand. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You see, the grace of God is his riches. It is his wealth. Our redemption and forgiveness comes because of the grace of God. That's where forgiveness and redemption comes from. The inexhaustible wealth and riches of God's grace. God has finally dealt with sin in Christ. You see, sin has no hold over the believer in Christ because God's grace is greater Do you remind yourself of this each day? This is the great hope of the gospel. That it is a love that never lets go. That it is forgiveness that is never exhaustible. It is a grace that is showered upon us. Paul says that it is lavished upon us. And this is a very interesting word. It means God goes over and above what he needs to. It is actually used in some context to say when you have something and it's sufficient and you still got some left over. God has so much grace for his people, there is grace left over on top of grace. If you know God's mercy, then you know the grace of God. That there is more than enough for you, there is actually some left over. And as you realize this, this is a life-changing Understanding. Because if God's mercy abounds to you beyond anything you deserve, then isn't it up to you to be merciful to others? To show them grace beyond anything that they deserve? To have mercy and grace stored up for them beyond what they need? You see, it is a mark of a forgiven people to testify to the goodness of God's marvelous grace. And we testify to that by being forgiving. It's not an easy thing. Forgiving others when they have hurt us is no easy task. But it's what we're called to in Christ. But Paul says, there's still more. Well, how can there be more? Paul's just described the grace of God to us. He's just described how we've been redeemed and forgiven. How could there possibly be more than that? Well, Paul wants us to know that God desires us to understand his intentions in giving us redemption and forgiveness. God wants us to know his purpose in what he is doing in salvation. And this takes us back, I think, to the concept we saw previously in the chapter about how we are adopted as God's children. You know this experience in your own home life. If you're doing some work around the house repairing things, or perhaps you're in the kitchen cooking, making a meal, and one of your children comes up to you and says, What's this? Why are you doing this? Well, you show them what you're doing. And you explain to them, 
why you're doing it. Because you want them to understand you're not just cooking. You're cooking because you love your family. And your family loves this meal. And you want to spend time together and sit at the table and have joy. You're not just fixing something because it has to be fixed. You're fixing something because it makes life easier for the rest of the family. And because it helps things to go smoothly and because you love them. You see, that's what God does here in Ephesians 1. He wants us to understand what he is doing and why he's doing it. And he begins here when Paul says, In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now in the phrase, in all wisdom and insight, there is a little bit of difficulty. Because the question is, do you take it as applying to the wisdom and insight of God's people? That God gives them wisdom and insight? Or do you take it as applying to God? That it is God's wisdom and insight. And as you can imagine, there are commentators on every side of the question and in between. But it seems to me that the best answer here is, at this point, that it is referring to God's wisdom and insight. You see, what God wants us to know is that when he speaks of election, redemption, salvation, it is not brought about in a haphazard way. It's not something he slapped together at the last minute. It's not a plan B. It is something that he has intentionally, from the foundations of the world, determined to do in his good pleasure. That this election, redemption, and forgiveness comes to us as the best wisdom of God. This decision was made in accordance with his infinite wisdom. And so therefore we can know that God is not grudging about salvation that this was his determined plan. And so now, God then reveals his plan to us. The mystery of his will, as Paul says. Well, what is the mystery? In the Bible, the word mystery refers to something that is at one time hidden, and then is later revealed. Actually, you could almost think of mystery in the Bible as surprise, without the horns and the hats. It's something that was always there, and then all of a sudden gets revealed. And that's what God does here now. He reveals this mystery, the mystery of salvation in Christ, forgiveness that is found in Christ. He reveals it to us once and for all. It's not something we could have possibly known in advance. We could not have guessed at this or understood that this would be how God would effectuate salvation. But Paul tells us this is something that has always been in God's plan and now for our good, he reveals it to us. It is God's will and purpose to redeem for himself a people. And he does it because it gives him pleasure. It is according to his purpose, Paul says. God desires to bring salvation. He desires it because it is his will and his good pleasure. He doesn't do this grudgingly. It doesn't need to be pried from his tight fingers. No, God wants us to be a part of his people, to be saved by grace, to have faith in Christ. This is his purpose. And he does it with Jesus Christ at the center of it all. 
Do you see that at the end of verse 9? He makes known the mystery of His will and He sets forth this in Christ. You see, Christ is of central importance in salvation. And God wants you to know this today. He wants you to know it to give you assurance. He wants you to know it so that you might be driven to worship. He wants you to know it to equip you to witness to a lost world that they would understand that God Himself has purposed the salvation of a people. Paul is overcome by this. And he wants you to be overcome as well. And Paul then continues to describe how this revelation comes to us, how this mystery is revealed. First, he had described the work of salvation. Then he described the plan of God around it. And now he begins to describe the timing. In verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. He says that Christ came bringing salvation at just the right time. Now, why would God tell us this? I think it's because we are tempted to ask questions. You know, it is not just children in the home who constantly ask the question, why? 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 We all have that natural inclination in our lives. We might be tempted to say, Why did God wait so long to bring salvation after Adam and Eve were thrust from the garden? Why didn't salvation come in the time of Noah or Abraham or David? And you see, the answer is that the perfect time for salvation to appear was exactly when it did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's salvation is perfect in all of its ways, in the way Jesus purchased it, in the way God planned it, and in the way God brought it about. Now that requires something of you and me. That requires us to trust God and His Word. To trust Him that when He says it is the perfect time, that it actually is the perfect time. And not to resist God, not to ask for further answer, But it means something else that I think is harder for us. It also means trusting the providence of God now. Because God brings about His will always at just the right time. At the perfect time. And one of the most difficult things of the Christian life is to trust that in the providence of God, that God is at work. After all, none of us likes to have financial problems. We don't desire to be sick. We don't desire to have problems at our job or our relationships. And I'm not saying to you that you should. But behind that frowning providence, we have to understand that God is at work. That He is doing something in our lives. And that in spite of the suffering and trials, that that is something that is being used by God to bring us into the image of Christ. God has the perfect plan and timing. I think Pastor David Platt puts it best. He says, comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved, not a providence from God. 
You see, we spend our time trying to solve the problem of discomfort instead of looking and listening for what God will tell us in our discomfort. But if we understand that God is perfect in all that He does and in all of the timing of His will, then we must understand that applies to all of our lives. Will you trust the perfect timing of God today? The Lord God has brought you here to this place at this time to hear this word by His will and perfect plan. Will you trust Him? Will you hear Him? Will you obey Him? There is one final thing that Paul sets forth for us at the end of verse 10. He tells us that this mystery that is revealed is to unite all things in Him that is in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. This final thing that Paul wants us to understand about the mystery of God's will is that redemption is far bigger than you or than me. God is bringing about redemption with a view to remaking all of the universe. He is doing all of this to bring everything under the headship of Christ. All things are being gathered together to find their importance and worth in Christ. The word here for unite is often used in rhetoric textbooks. And it is used to sum up a point. Or to make the main point clear. You see, what God is saying is the main point of the universe, the main point of redemption, the main point of everything is Jesus. He is at the center of it all. Jesus is the focal point of all things in heaven and on earth. So today, will you join Paul in his praise? Will you join Paul in his praise for the salvation that God gives? Will you join him for the praise he gives to the glory and honor that it brings to Christ? You see, this is what the Lord has put before us this morning. Praise for the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done and the difference it makes in our lives each and every day. Worship. King Jesus, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would take us ever closer to the cross, that you would remind us that only there can we find forgiveness of sins. Only there can we find truth and meaning and hope. Lord, we ask this morning that all of our lives would be a glory to King Jesus. That He would be the glory of all we are. That all that we undertake and all that we are would be summed up in the person and worth of Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.